Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 53, Contra Free Vocations. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Egg what we egg. Smoking class when we smoking class. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 18, Separate Vocations, which first aired on February 27th, 1992. And I'm going to be taking a break from the serious stuff, as on February 28th, 1992, the day after Separate Vocations first aired, the Super Nintendo game Contra 3 The Alien Wars was released in the US. I'll be using that as an excuse to talk about Nintendo games in the early 90s and the history of video games in general, so stay tuned for that. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And before we get going, I want to give a shout out to Ed Sir who told us that I am not alone in my memories of watching baseball on Channel 5 in the early noughties. He says that it was such a shame when Channel 5 didn't renew its contract with ESPN for content as we lost a lot of overnight sport. It was Channel 5 that got me into IndyCar. And apparently the official IndyCar UK account replied to that with live and dangerous. I don't don't know what that means, but good stuff. Yeah, IndyCar was briefly shown on uh, British television in 1992. Uh, sorry, 1993, um, simply because Nigel Mansell was in it. Uh, Nigel Mansell, who was Formula One world champion and British, moved to IndyCar and immediately won the title. Um, and yeah, and then there was no more British interest in it, so off it went until Channel 5 came along. But it's always fun to see them turning forever left. <laughs> Good stuff. So this episode aired on February the 27th, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one on that date? Well, it was still Stay. And My Girl is up to number two. And would you believe the Pasadenas are still clinging on to fourth spot for dear life? But at number three, we have a new challenger. And you will have to forgive me for the enormous earworm I am about to lay within your external acoustic meters. Because would you believe it's the none more 1992 sound of Shanice with I Love Your Smile. This was everywhere around that time absolutely inescapable i'm almost certain it was in an advert as well but i can't work out which one maybe one of our listeners could help me with that one but who is shanice well shanice wilson is a former child star having appeared in a kentucky fried chicken advert at the age of nine then the television program kids incorporated and then on star search after which she was signed to a&m records the label set up originally by herb alpert of spanish flea fame she released her first album in 1987 at the age of 14, and this single is taken from her second album, Inner Child, which was released in 1991. So she was presumably 17 or 18 when this single was knocking about. The single is far and away her most successful, going top 10 in apparently 22 countries. And according to Wikipedia, it did go to number one in Zimbabwe, as well as topping the Billboard R&B charts. Shanice hasn't hit those heights since, but continues to record and released a single as recently as 2019, as well as providing vocals and backing vocals for hits credited to others, such as Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart and at least one track on a certain Turbo Nonsense posthumous 2010 album. In case people don't know how I Love Your Smile goes, it's one of those ones you'll know it as soon as you hear it. It goes... I love your smile. And see, given the, the advert scene of the early 90s, it could well be that that was all an advert, or it could be that somebody just completely ripped it off for an advert, which happened uh, quite a lot around the time. So so if anybody can help me, I'm genuinely interested to know about that. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.8, which is approximately 13.6 million viewing households, and it was the top-rated show on Fox that week. The production number is 8F15, and the credited writer is George Meyer, as we discussed in episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar de Magier. The chalkboard gag is, I will not bath unless I'm sick. Good advice there from Bart, I think. 
and the couch gag is Bart leaping into the family's laps. Again. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to have wild dreams about what Edna's big surprise for the class is. Tom, you must have known by now that this quiz was coming. To add an extra free song to proceedings, I will need both Dream and Dreamer. Right. Okay. It is Milhouse dreaming about a (laughs) sort of offensive stereotype, wrestling a crocodile slash alligator. It's one of Sherry or Terry dreaming about a sort of sort of elfy pixie type thing giving her ice cream and bart dreaming that mrs crabapple is in fact some sort of alien correct that's uh six out of six there um yeah. worth worth noting the sherry or terry i i couldn't establish which one has yellower skin than usual which i assume is an animation gaff um as they're usually a lot paler um but anyway it's it's none of those for what is basically any surprise in school but a surprise test which we then see Lisa celebrating just one snake-infested floor down from Bart's classroom. The career aptitude normalising test, or can't, <laughs> appears to be that thing off the gov.uk website that everyone was alternately laughing at or raging about a week before we recorded this, that was meant to make all the starving artists and bartenders discover they were actually suited to office jobs, but was actually too good for once, and largely suggested artists or bartenders, but maybe think about not starving. <laughs> Or become a web developer, work for Serco, and get millions to make that website. Edna predicts some of the kids will discover that life isn't fair. A lesson it sadly seems she has taken to heart herself. But off they go nonetheless, with the teachers apparently reading every question. Which is even more of a waste of time than the 15 minutes they then spend staring at the front of the room. The tests are taken via Iowa Non-International Airport to Proctorville, home of the National Testing Centre controlling your destiny since 1925, and fed into a machine called Emma. I thought Emma might be an acronym, but no, apparently not. I'd just run with that one in my imagination for 28 years without checking. (laughs) Anyway, Emma has a slight malfunction when marking Bart's paper, which might explain the next few events for the Simpsons children. Everyone then gets told their scientifically chosen career. Tom, we're going to do this differently here. In order of their appearance, I'll tell you the child... You tell me the career. Oh, okay. So first up, it's Janie. She gets architect, I think. She does. Next we have Chuck. Oh, which one's Chuck? Oh, Chuck's the little kid with the blonde hair. Oh, what did he get? No, you're going to have to tell me. I can't remember him. He got insurance salesman. Oh, yes, that's right. I completely forgot the totally mundane one. But as an aside at this stage, Chuck Berger here looks like a very familiar one-shot character with a similar hairstyle. And some sources online have him down as the same child that will memorably perform My Diggling, as made oh, famous yes. by his possible namesake Chuck Berry, in Season 3, Episode 8, Lisa's Pony. And indeed, Chuck is the spitting image of that child, only with blonde hair instead of blue. Other sources simply call the latter My Diggling Kid. <laughs> it's a mystery we may never solve. Anyway, back to the kids that we do know. So next we have Ralph. I know, he gets salmon gutter. Yes, and note that he's intelligent enough at this point to be clearly annoyed about that. <laughs> Next, we have Millhouse. Um, oh, what does Millhouse get? I watched this like five minutes ago. Why can't I remember what Millhouse gets? Oh, he gets something really quite mundane as well, doesn't he? Uh, oh, no! Military Strongman. Military Strongman, yes. Military perhaps, Strongman. Perhaps the seeds of his MRA tendencies being sown there. Um, <laughs> then we have Martin. Systems Analyst. Yep, which he really wanted. Uh, Lisa. Well, Lisa gets homemaker, what we'd call a housewife. Yep, and Bart. Policeman. Yes. Popular culture has a good grasp of the kind of troublemaker to whom authority and throat booting would be attractive. And I think Bart could go that way, but I like to think he wouldn't, as evidenced by his enthusiasm for becoming a drifter, as Dr. Pryor also suggests. Lousy sheriff. (laughs) So the Simpsons kids are both shocked. Uh, and try to cope with these shocks as best they can. But Lisa is clearly heartbroken, which offends Marge, and Bart is just confused. He can one-up Homer, though, who was too fat to join the police. Uh, Sorry, no, he was too fat for the army. He was too dumb for the police, which which I don't think is a thing these days. No, definitely not. Lisa insists she'll be a jazz musician, with all the decadence, doom, and European appreciation that that brings. So Marge takes her to little Ludwig's music school, 
where a hipster douche tells her she'll never make it as she inherited stubbiness of the fingers from her father. Cut to Homer dropping his beer. Lou and Eddie then turn up to take part on a police ride-along, but it's not as exciting as he hoped. All casual corruption and mayoral polling. Until suddenly, it's time to shoot some bad guys. Or at least everyone's favourite criminal, Snake Jailbird. Driving a red car with licence number, Eggplant Xerxes Crybaby Overbite Narwhal. And an excellent joke that works on several levels, especially if you've ever had to use the phonetic alphabet in your call centre job. <laughs> they have a spectacular chase, including a milk tanker that inexplicably explodes into flames, and the obligatory cardboard boxes, before cornering the ex, and indeed future, con, at which point the officers give Bart a gun and ask him to cover them. Going to give that a little a little space for us to take take in that decision there. Okay, and uh, and Snake then attempts vehicular manslaughter on a child as Act One ends. Act Two, Death drives a stick. Starts with the alley narrowing severely towards the end. <laughs> In one of my favourite uh, visual gags of, of the uh, series, that also makes no sense whatsoever. Um, mm. This spares Bart whilst horribly injuring Snake, though despite him being unconscious, Chief Wigan is convinced he'll have heard his zinger. <laughs> Bart is hooked on the thrills and power and Wiggum dubs him an honorary police officer. Lisa symbolically ends her journal, quits her band, mopes around, and deals out sassmouth to the ever-optimistic Marge, before visiting a Batgirl bathroom and getting the school puma egged. Meanwhile, Bart starts going detective at home and school, busting Homer and Willie and getting into Skinner's good books for once. The world goes topsy-turvy, and Seymour makes him a hall monitor, giving him the opportunity to turn into a devastating mix of Elliot Ness and the Terminator. Lisa's no-good nickery spills over into the classroom, telling Miss Hoover to shove it but drawing the line at a cigarette. By contrast, Bart is given his pick of the contraband for a job well done, and thanks to HDTV and Freeze Frame, I can now tell you that that contraband includes a salacious halter top, spiked wristbands, spray paint, nunchucks, the Flash's shirt for some reason, a catapult, four fireworks, a sack with evidence written on it, several dice, full collections of mad and cracked, a rubber spider, a flick knife, the occasional issue of crazy, a bomb, an enigmatic box with a skull and crossbones on it, what appear to be several pornographic magazines, and a fake plastic derriere. <laughs> Bart chooses a hitherto unseen crossbow. Bart's rise and Lisa's fall continue, with the school now so secure that even Mr. Glasscock can return to teaching. But all that is ruined when Lisa steals every single teacher's edition, leaving the teachers stuck without the answers. Edna puts Martin in charge of her class of the day, while Miss Hoover freaks out, and the random hippie teacher entertains the children with tales of his misadventures in the 60s. When the police dogs get the scent of books and make straight for the library, Skinner unleashes his own bloodhound in Bart who rightly believes the books haven't left the building. The two of them perform a random locker check, Supreme Court be damned. But when Bart discovers the books in Lisa's locker, he knows she is up for expulsion, and tells Seymour he stole the books. Knowing they will go easy on him in light of his recent record, and that Lisa has the brains and talent to go far, meaning he can mooch off her in later life. He is given 400 days detention, but manages to talk himself up to 600. And we close, deliciously, with a rarely seen second chalkboard gag, as Bart writes out, I will not expose the ignorance of the faculty, and Lisa entertains him with her reclaimed saxophone. And that's it. And that's good. I think it's a it's a low-key one, but it's uh, it's full of good moments. It is. There's some bits which don't quite sit that well with me. I mean, I'm not a big fan of a role reversal, especially like bad Lisa, that kind of that's kind of a bit jarring, really. Although although Bart as a cop is a very, very interesting idea to explore, especially especially with ideas we've got around the police in 2020, but something that, you know, people have known for decades, especially comedy writers. I mean, if you look at the young ones and how they treated the British police, it's very, very similar to how people treat the police in America nowadays. Basically, they're all thick. They're all after power. And they're all after authority. And that, that, that fits Bart quite well. But yeah, Lisa being bad, mm, I don't buy it. I think she gets less to do as well. Bart definitely gets the, the meatier end of the, the storyline happenings. So I think by contrast, it, it definitely does look worse. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, it's, I, I, I stand by it. I think it's good. Um, 
but but you do raise a good point there. So, what do you do when you have a, a whole section of your podcast that is devoted to character debuts, but nobody seems to debut in this episode? That's when you talk about Puma Pride. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, it's the best I've got. But uh, the school Puma will be back in at least one further episode. Season 12, episode 10, Pokemon, which features Michael Keaton as a guest voice and is still really quite bad. <laughs> Though some laughs are provided by the B-plot with Dr. Homer's miracle spino cylinder bringing him into conflict with chiropractors. Remember, kids, if an episode doesn't have Ricky Gervais in and is from seasons 14 to date, there's a really good chance that it's better than almost anything in seasons 11 to 13. Get out there. Try some. The school Puma, I'm not kidding here, also features more heavily in the comics. Fantastic. I, when when we started this podcast, I thought I'd be saying that all the time, just based on uh, Mervyn Monroe in episode one. And this is probably only the third time I've got to say it. But yeah, there's a whole story called The Perplexing Puzzle of the Springfield Puma, which revolves around its theft. Uh, and I think it's a, as far as I can tell, it's a pastiche of the Maltese Falcon. Right. Um, and finally, in season 22, episode 22, The Deadliest Catch, the school's girls' basketball team is revealed to be named the Springfield Lady Pumas. That led me down a rabbit hole of trying to work out whether Lady Pumas actually have a, a proper name, as in, you know, cows and bulls and so on and so forth. But I, I, I was unable to find one. Unable to find one. So, again, if you know uh, whether Shanice's I Love Your Smile was in a UK advert or what a lady puma is called, please get in touch through all the usual uh, methods. So, so for did you know, I do actually have some material for this one. It's Emmy time again. And the winner this time round was Nancy Cartwright for her performance as Bart Simpson. Lisa makes a pretty huge reference to the 1953 Marlon Brando film The Wild One, the iconic story of a rebellious motorcycle gang, who I only just realised are called Black Rebel Motorcycle Club which would later be the name of a frustratingly inconsistent alternative rock band in the early 2000s. It's the bit where she says, what do you got? And I think these days people are more familiar with the many, many references to the film throughout popular culture than the film itself. Um, so that's, that's where that is. So my final point is a doozy, as far as I'm concerned. Steve Allen, later revealed as the inventor of the POG in Season 6, Episode 22, Round Springfield, is the electronically altered voice of Bart in Bart's courtroom cutaway. Now, it does actually say something along the lines of voice altered electronically to sound like Steve Allen, but I never realised it actually was Steve Allen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Apparently, the writers who could remember his shows from the 50s and 60s were super glad to have got him, allegedly including John Schwartzwelder, which can't be true for obvious reasons. But their enthusiasm soon diminished when it took him nine attempts to correctly pronounce I Carumba. Dear. Yeah, and, and that bit with Steve Allen, it doesn't stick in people's minds. It's it's not memorable at all. No, not at all. Which, which is a bit of a waste of a cameo, really. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether we'd uh, remember it more if he wasn't the inventor of the park in Season 6, Episode 22, Round Springfield. But, um, <laughs> but we'll never know because we know. Tom, over to you for the memeable moments. Okay, now I'm going to have to really scrape the barrel here because there's sort of two, not even half ones, more quarter ones. So Lisa's stubby fingers are kind of referenceable, but not really. The only line that really sticks out for me is when Miss Hoover can't cope without having her answer book. And she goes outside the classroom and goes, calm blue ocean, calm blue ocean, calm blue ocean. That sticks with people, mostly because... And I know I'm not alone in this because people couldn't work out what she was saying when they were younger. I thought she was saying karma lotion, karma lotion when I first saw it. But no. So her, her saying calm blue ocean, that's the closest thing I've got to something memeable. Calm blue ocean it is then. Fantastic. Uh, memeable moments will return next time. Uh, and now, Tom, um, please, please speak to me of perhaps my favourite mid-90s gaming platform. Okay, my bit. Bear in mind, we're currently on episode 53, so I think I get to cheat a little. The major world event that happened closest to February 27th, 1992, was the abhorrent Kajali massacre, and that happened on February 26th, the day before. However, I've already looked at that, as that happened during the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, something I went over in episode 40, Azerbaijan Defined. So instead of looking at a massacre, 
I thought I'd take the opportunity to chill out a bit and look at video games. The closest release date to this episode for any major video game is February 28th, 1992, the day after Separate Locations first aired. This day saw the release of Contra 3, The Alien Wars for the Super Nintendo. That game is itself a quality side-scroller, otherwise known as a run-and-gun, that sees the player take control of a soldier who battles all sorts of weird and wonderful aliens. The game was known as Contra 3 in the States and Japan, but in Europe, it was called Super Probotector. Now, there's an interesting reason for the different names and identities, and you probably won't be surprised that it's due to censorship. But before we get to that, I thought I'd give a whistle-stop tour of the history of video games. So here we go. Funnily enough, the question, what was the first video game, doesn't really have a simple answer. The earliest known demonstrated game was called Bertie the Brain, a noughts and crosses game built by Joseph Cates for the 1950 Canadian National Exhibition. However, this was made really for academic purposes. Tennis for Two, which is widely regarded as being the first proper video game created purely for entertainment purposes rather than academic research, was designed by the American William Higginbotham and was played on an oscilloscope, equipment more commonly found in radar. It was crude, with the rackets being controlled by very clunky custom controllers. The game, however, was analogue and it simulated gravity pretty well. It was demoed at Brookhaven National Laboratory's annual public exhibition in 1958 and was very popular with high school students. The first video game to be played on multiple hardware installations was 1962's Space War, complete with an exclamation mark at the end. It was designed to be played on the PDP-1, a computer designed and manufactured by the Digital Equipment Corporation. And this computer was about the size of a piano, probably a bit bigger, actually. It looks suspiciously like the Gambletron 2000 that Professor Frink uses in Lisa the Greek. It had a separate monitor, which once again was based on radar equipment, and the programs were written not on punch cards, but punch strips, very similar to the tic-tac-toe game written by Apu. The system included a typewriter, which could print output, a very early command line. So if you've ever used a command line on a computer, this machine was hooked up to a typewriter, and the typewriter would output stuff onto paper as you were using the computer. It's been quite remarkable. It also included a primitive light pen, which allowed operators to draw on the screen. So it was capable of recognising light from the screen, and you could draw on it, which was, you know, really advanced. So the game Space War itself was designed for two players. Each one takes control of the spaceship, and the objective is to destroy the other player. You can move the ship left or right, thrust, and fire projectiles. So it was a bit like asteroids in that sense. Everything moved very smoothly, and there was even a star in the middle of a screen that the ships gravitated towards. It used just four kilobytes of memory. It was quite a technical feat. Now, Space War proved to be the inspiration for Galaxy Game, a game developed at Stanford University by Bill Pitts and Hugh Tuck to demonstrate the feasibility of coin-operated arcade games. During the first demonstration of it in 1971, Pitts and Tuck met with a guy called Nolan Bushell, who told them of the game he was developing with his partner Ted Dabney, Computer Space. They came up with some really imaginative titles back then. Now, Computer Space did reasonably well, making over a million dollars in its first year. Bushel and Dabney wanted to build on their success and began working on a tennis game. They also founded a company for their projects. That tennis game was Pong, and the company was Atari. So, you know, early on, you've got some big players established pretty quickly. So Atari was born out of very early coin-op games. But what about home consoles? Back in 1951, the inventor Ralph Henry Bayer had the idea of making an interactive game that you could play on a television set. He essentially dreamt up the idea of a home video game console. However, it wouldn't be until 1966 that the dream became a reality when he created the prototype for what would become the Magnavox Odyssey. Released in 1972, the Odyssey takes the title of the world's first home video game console, and to be honest, primitive doesn't begin to describe it. The Odyssey was capable of displaying three dots on a TV screen. There was no colour, no sound, and not really any graphics. It came with two controllers, which were just plastic boxes with a dial on each side. One dial controlled the vertical position of the dot and the other the horizontal. The third dot appeared according to instructions on the cartridges, which were numbered printed circuit boards. It wasn't even one cartridge per game. Each cartridge could play several games depending on the instructions. Graphics-wise, the system came with a bunch of plastic overlays that you placed on top of your TV screen. 
It came with a bunch of other stuff, including gambling chips, various cards, even an American football field. So if you wanted to play roulette on the Odyssey, you did the following. You put a cartridge into the machine, which would make a single dot appear on the TV screen. You would then place a plastic overlay of a roulette wheel over the top of your TV. Then one player would pick up a controller, close their eyes and randomly turn the X and Y dials. Wherever the dot ended up on the screen, that was where the ball was on the roulette wheel. (laughs) There was a, a lot of imagination involved in early video gaming. Oh, definitely. So, of course, the dot often ended up off the screen completely, so you just had to settle on the nearest segment after you found it. Uh, uh, yeah, so all in all, pretty desperate stuff. So there was also a Simon Says game where you drew a card and you had to move your dot to, you know, wherever the card said on the screen. Yeah, desperate. So the Odyssey did have one fairly major innovation, though, the world's first light gun. Now, light guns became fairly common peripherals in the 80s, and the way they worked was fairly simple. They had photosensors that could detect if the gun was pointing at light, hence the phrase light gun. In more advanced games, the screen would change to a black background with a white square for a fraction of a second when the trigger was pulled. The gun would then detect if it was pointing at the square and register a hit if it was. The Odyssey had a choice of two guns, one which resembled a pistol and the other a rifle. And quite frankly, they looked far too much like actual weapons for comfort. Remember, this was way before any notion of consumer protection, and they were made for the American market. So, although the Magnavox Odyssey was never really that popular, Pong was, and there was a market for it to be played at home. Subsequent consoles that bore the name Odyssey, the 100 and the 200, could only play variations of Pong. Between 1975 and 77, the reduced costs of the chips required to play Pong meant that anyone who wanted to make a Pong console could, and companies made them in their dozens. In 1977, the same year Star Wars was released, six million of these Pong consoles were sold. The Pong console craze fizzled out after that as consumers switched to cartridge-based consoles. The first of these was the Fairchild Channel F, released in 1976, but a system released a year later had far more impact. The Atari Video Computer System, or VCS, later dubbed the Atari 2600. The 2600 was the definitive classic console, pretty much defining the term video game in the late 70s and early 80s. The cartridges had a whopping two kilobytes of memory. The graphics were blocky and barely resembled what they were supposed to be. But the sounds were awesome, really sticking in people's memories. Atari hit it big with their home version of Space Invaders, and it looked like they would dominate the market for years to come. That was until the infamous video game crash of 1983. A series of factors combined to give Atari an absolute hammering. So what caused the crash? Firstly, crap games. Two in particular spring to mind, Pac-Man and E.T. Their version of Pac-Man bore so little resemblance to the arcade game that uh, it completely eroded consumer confidence. And that's that's before E.T., which I'm sure you're about to, uh, mm. about to tell us about. Yeah, yeah. So and Pac-Man was really hyped up as well. So, so about 7 billion copies of Pac-Man were sold. And as you say, people were just baffled by it because Pac-Man looked wrong. I think he had eyes and the screen flickered. The controls were sluggish. It was just, yeah, it was really bad. Now, E.T., on the other hand, didn't sell nearly as well as Pac-Man did. The Steven Spielberg film E.T. The Extraterrestrial was the summer blockbuster of 1982. So, of course, Atari assumed a game based on it would sell like hotcakes. However, they didn't secure the rights for it until late July 1982, giving the game designer Howard Scott Warshaw just five weeks to make it in order for it to hit the shelves by Christmas. What he came up with was an absolute mess. The basic idea is that you play as E.T. and you have to collect pieces for a telephone so that you can call the rest of the aliens so that they come and pick you up. Trouble is, the first thing you do is fall in a hole, and to get out, you have to levitate. In order to do this, you need to press certain buttons in the right order at exactly the right time. Gamers found that even once they'd mastered getting out of the first hole, they'd take a step and immediately fall down another hole. The game was not at all fun to play, and word soon got out that it was crap. Despite this, the game sold one and a half million units in the Christmas rush of 1982. Now, that may sound impressive, but Atari had ordered five million units of the game. So Atari started 1983 with a bloated inventory of E.T. games and retailers with huge amounts of unsold stock. Needless to say, the retailers weren't happy and both retailer and consumer confidence in Atari decreased. 
In the end, Atari ended up dumping hundreds of thousands of unsold copies of E.T. at Alamo Gordo in New Mexico, chucking them in a landfill and covering them with concrete. And that did happen. It was it was rumoured to be an urban legend for decades, but someone actually went there and dug them up. So, you know. Yeah, I think I saw a documentary about that. But yeah, they, they were definitely found. It's um, that that's that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So another explanation for the crash was increased competition. Magnavox released the Odyssey 2 in 1978, and Mattel released the Intellivision in 1979. On top of that, there was also ColecoVision, as well as a few others. Coleco even released a module for the ColecoVision that allowed gamers to play Atari 2600 games on it. Can you imagine that today? <sighs> That's like releasing a, a, a Mega Drive add-on for the Super Nintendo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, on top of this, the amount of games publishers exploded in the early 80s, up until 1979, there was no such thing as a third-party developer. Atari made all of their games themselves. This changed when a handful of developers left Atari to form Activision. Now, Activision games were quality products, including Pitfall, which by 1982 had sold over 4 million units. The same could not be said for other third-party developers. They grew exponentially in the early 80s, and they made some pretty shoddy games. The poor quality of the games were made contributed to the lack of consumer confidence. The crash led to Atari posting a $536 million loss for the end of 1983. The next year, Atari was split up and sold. The timing was highly inconvenient, and it interrupted one of the coolest events in video game history, Sword Quest. Remember Sword Quest? No, that's, that's, that's new to me. Oh, wow, okay. Oh, all right, then I'll tell you about Sword Quest. So with Sword Quest, the idea was that gamers would buy a cartridge that came with a comic book. The comic book was made by DC Comics, so, you know, proper stuff. So by completing the game and finding clues, the player would complete the puzzle of the game and they then send the answers off to Atari. The few people that successfully completed the puzzle then went to Atari headquarters and competed for real treasures, which had a combined value of $150,000. And it was amazing stuff. It was like um, philosopher's stones made out of gold and embedded with jewels and a sword that was silver plated, all, all this sort of stuff. And the crash took hold before the full game series was finished, and the location of most of the treasures is unknown. Oh, yeah. that is a shame. But yeah, so Sword Quest was an awesome idea. Awesome. So, out of the ashes of a video game crash emerged a major player from Japan, Nintendo. Now, Nintendo was founded all the way back in 1889 and originally made playing cards. But by the mid-80s, they were no strangers to the world of electronics. In 1979, they opened their American subsidiary in New York, and they truly became global. 1980 saw the release of its Game & Watch series of handheld portable devices, built using a similar technology to pocket calculators. These proved incredibly popular, with over 43 million units being sold worldwide. Then in 1981 came the arcade game Donkey Kong. This, of course, was a huge hit. I mean, I don't have to explain Donkey Kong, do I? Surely anybody who's listening to this knows what Donkey Kong is. Anyway. The protagonist of the game was originally known as Jumpman, but he was later renamed after the landlord of Nintendo's offices in Washington, that being Mario Segale. So that's the birth of Mario, his name, not the landlord. So before the crash, Nintendo had plans for a games console of their own. In July 1983, pretty much slap bang in the crash in the USA, Nintendo launched the Family Computer, or Famicom. The system initially did poorly, as issues with the motherboard led to a product recall. However, once these issues were ironed out, the system took off. It used top-loading cartridges, similar to the Atari 2600, but it did have one feature that would be considered strange today. The controllers were hardwired to the system, so this was done for cost reasons, but the wires were short and it meant players usually had to sit on the floor. Maybe that wasn't a problem for Japanese households, I've no idea. The second controller had a very odd feature, a microphone. The only time I've ever seen it used is for The Legend of Zelda. In the original Zelda game, there's an enemy called Paul's Voice. It kind of looks like a rabbit. And the instruction manual, the English instruction manual, says that Paul's Voice hates loud noises. But in the Japanese version, if you enter a room that contains this enemy, and you shout into the microphone, and just make a noise, anything, then it kills all the Paul's Voices. That's pretty weird. Which, of course, can't be done on the PAL version. Much to my uh, chagrin when I was uh, playing that particular game, there, there's literally no defense against them because the, <laughs> the, the thing that you would need to get rid of them is not there. Yeah. Um, there, there's one other um, 
memorable use of the microphone that I'm aware of, which is uh, in a game called uh, Takeshi no Chosenjo, uh, or the ultimate challenge from Beat Takeshi, which is basically where um, actor Beat Takeshi made a game, but he didn't like video games very much, so he made a really weird, really difficult game. Um, And part of that is actually having to sing karaoke at a karaoke bar for an unreasonably large amount of time into the microphone, (laughs) uh, or you lose the game. That's amazing. Is that Takeshi as in Takeshi's Castle? It is, yes. Yes, I thought as much. So that kind of humour is very much throughout. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So the Famicom was released in the USA as the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985, and it was given a complete overhaul. So they added controllers that you could plug in for a start, but the name Entertainment System is very deliberate. Video games were kind of seen as old hats in the States, and Nintendo were trying to offer something a bit different. You know, they were saying, this is not a console, this is an entertainment system. So the complete system came with a light gun accessory, so people could play Duck Hunt, you know, get, you know, shoot that dog when he, when he starts <laughs> laughing at you anyway. But it also had one curio, a little guy known as Rob the Robot. Now, Rob was a weird little thing, but he looked great in adverts. He was part of a marketing gimmick. He says, look, 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 you buy this thing, you get a little robot as well. How cool is that? Only two games were made for him, and they were Gyromite and Stackup. Gyromite was a platformer that was played in a very odd way. The game required two players, and Rob was one of them. You put the controller in a special adapter, attached it to Rob, and set up a spinning gyro, a little sort of spinning disc that, that, that can sort of sustain itself on platforms. The idea was that you got Rob to pick up a spinning gyro, drop it on a button, activate the controller, and then that would open gates for you, so you could then go through gates. To tell Rob to do something, you press buttons on your controller, and that would make the screen flash. The sensors in Rob's eyes would detect this and set him in motion. Trouble was, the game was pretty much unplayable because it took Rob an eternity to move, and the player was forced to wait for it often being killed on screen while they helplessly watch the little robot. So so you might have a, an enemy toddling towards you, and you go, oh, right, I need to close the red gate. Right, Rob, close that red gate for me. And he, he, he sort of gets the signal, and he goes, and by the time he's done what he needs to do to close the gate, the enemy's killed you. Rob the robot, as games go, was completely useless, but he looked pretty cool on all the packaging. Oh, absolutely! Gone on to be a character in uh, Super Smash Brothers as well, so they're at mm-hmm. least uh, they're at least using the IP still. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Rob was forgotten about pretty much immediately, but the popularity of the NES endures to this day. Nintendo released hit after hit, including the Super Mario and Zelda games. They prevented the problems caused by third-party developers by limiting their activities. All games released by third-party developers had to be officially licensed and tested and those that were had an official gold Nintendo seal of approval on the box. Of course, that didn't necessarily mean the game was good, but it was at least functional, which was a step up from some of the 2600 games. So Nintendo introduced a lockout chip, meaning that unofficial games wouldn't work on their system. However, at least one company found a workaround for it, the California-based Color Dreams. They were founded in 1988, and were known for such hits as Menace Beach, which sees the player take control of the kid on a skateboard who is trying to rescue his girlfriend. And his girlfriend's clothes are slowly rotting in cutscenes. So that got people to <laughs> to watch just to see how much see how many of their clothes are going to go. It's very weird. So they were unable to get their games into stores because Nintendo could say, right, if you're going to stock unofficial games, you're not going to stock the official games, so we're not going to supply them to you. So they couldn't get their games into stores. They changed their name to Wisdom Tree in 1990 and started to produce Christian games. Oh, yes, I have heard of these. Mm. And they went through their back catalogue and they made Venice Beach into Sunday Fun Day. And the objective of the game became to get the kid to Sunday school. And the girlfriend was replaced by a Sunday school teacher who just kept telling you you had to get to Sunday school. Did, did, did she get more clothes as time went on? <laughs> um, this sounds very much like something that Rod and Todd Flanders would play. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Flanders would have no problem with this whatsoever. So it may sound pathetic what they did, but it worked brilliantly for them. So they targeted Christian bookshops. 
the kind of business that wouldn't normally sell Nintendo games anyway, so Nintendo couldn't threaten the shops with cutting off their official stock. Christian parents were happy to buy the games in the hope that their kids would learn something about the Bible, and kids were happy to get a video game, even if they were a bit shoddy. Wisdom Tree would go on to be involved in a pretty odd bit of censorship, which I'll talk about a bit more later. With the popularity of home consoles re-established after the crash, companies looked to the next innovation, and they came in the form of handheld consoles. By far and away, the most successful of these was Nintendo's Game Boy. While rivals like the Atari Lynx and Sega Game Gear boasted full-colour screens and better sound, the Game Boy, with its four-colour LCD screen and basic speaker, won out for a few reasons. One was cost, was a lot cheaper than all the others, another was availability of games, and another was battery life. However, what really sold the Game Boy was its killer app, Tetris. The story of Tetris is quite incredible. There's a great documentary about it by the gaming historian out there, so I'll just summarise it here. The first version of Tetris was completed in 1984 by the Russian computer scientist Alexei Pachinov at the Soviet Academy of Sciences. At that point, the Iron Curtain was very much still up, so how on earth did a game developed by a Soviet academic make its way to the West? Well, the concept of intellectual property didn't really exist in the Soviet Union, but Pachinov did a deal with the Academy through his supervisor, Viktor Brzejbin. Brzejbin sent a copy of Tetris to the Hungarian game publisher Novatrade. While on a business trip to Hungary, the salesman Robert Stein happened to cross a copy of the game and realised its potential. He communicated with Pachinov and Brzejbin to try and do a deal for the licensing rights in the USA. What happened next was extremely complicated. Stein thought that he had a deal, based on a few faxes, and sold the European rights to the games in Mirosoft, and the American rights to Spectrum Holobyte, and they released the game for the PC in 1987 and 1988 respectively. When the Soviet Union's Central Computer Software Organization Electronorg Technica, also known as ELORG, found out they were furious. ELORG ended up negotiating with three companies for the rights to Tetris on various formats, and people were suing each other left, right and centre. Eventually, Nintendo claimed the rights to home console versions of Tetris after a lengthy legal battle with Atari. They released it for the NES, and later converted it for the Game Boy. The NES dominated the home console market in the States until the release of the Sega Genesis, known as the Sega Mega Drive outside of the USA. It came with Sonic the Hedgehog, and sparked all kinds of playground rivalries. My personal favourite part was the Bit Wars, when someone would go, You've got an NES, that's just 8 bits. I've got a Mega Drive, that's 16 bit. What the hell is a bit? I have no idea, but mine's got 8 more of them. Nintendo's answer to the Mega Drive was the <clears throat> 16-bit Super Nintendo, first released in Japan as the Super Famicom on November 21st, 1990. It had a sleek design, and the design in Europe was the same used in Japan. However, in the States, it was this chunky, ugly grey box with purple buttons. In addition to this, the plastic turned yellow over time, making it rather anesthetic. The Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES as everyone called it, did really well, having sold 49 million units worldwide by the time it was discontinued in 2003. Although it only had a handful of launch titles, the fact that Sega mocked with their only six reasons to buy something super campaign, third-party developers and Nintendo's own R&D team flocked to it. Games like Super Mario World, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, and Super Castlevania 4 became legendary. One game that's certainly up there is Contra 3 The Alien Wars, Released in the USA on February 28, 1992, the day after Separate Locations first aired. The Contra series has an interesting history. Those of you who've listened to Episode 8, the Telltale Nicaraguan Election, will recognise the name Contra as that of the armed groups in Nicaragua who were funded by the US. However, the word Contra just means against. No one knows for sure if the soldiers in the game are based on the Nicaraguan Contras, but the ending theme was originally called Sandinista, the people the Contras were fighting. So there's probably something to it, just not quite sure. But the Contra games fell foul of British censorship. The socially conservative Prue to Mary Whitehouse was in full rage at the time, and certain words and themes tended to be avoided. One word was ninja, which is why the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were named as the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles in the UK. On top of that, nunchucks were banned, so you never got to see Michelangelo fight. As for Contra, that word was also deemed too violent, so the game was renamed Probotector, and the soldiers replaced with robots. This carried on into the Super Nintendo era, and the PAL version of the game was Super Probotector, and again featured robots fighting aliens. With SNES censorship, everyone remembers what happened with the original Mortal Kombat. The game is incredibly tame by today's standards, 
But back then, the idea of controlling a character and ripping people's heads off was pretty alluring to young boys, including me. The SNES version toned down everything, replacing the blood with sweat. They kept in Scorpio's toasty, though, which was nice of them. It's such a shame as well, because that was a very good conversion of the arcade game. It was it was near perfect, uh, but it, it, it couldn't stand without the blood. It was part of the whole gimmick. It was part of the makeup, the aesthetic of that, that game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But to me, the worst victim of Super Nintendo censorship was Wolfenstein 3D. The original PC version saw the player take control of the spy BJ Blaskovich. I assume that's how it's pronounced. It's a Polish name. So they take control of him during World War II. The character is a one-man army, and he has to fight his way through hordes of Nazis, eventually reaching and killing Hitler himself. Whether the game was inspiration for Save Hitler's Brain, the game you sometimes see in The Simpsons, I don't know. The Super Nintendo version was very different. The Nazis were replaced by generic soldiers who spoke English instead of German. Dogs were replaced by giant rats, because you couldn't have any cruelty animals. And all the swastikas and various other Nazi imagery was taken out. They removed Hitler's moustache in the portraits of him on the walls, so it could have been Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka, for all anyone knew. Now, Wolfenstein 3D is considered the grandfather of all 3D shooters, being the direct inspiration for Doom. But it isn't the only game it inspired. Remember Wisdom Tree, the Christian gaming company? Well, there's a very odd story involving them and Wolfenstein. Back when they were Color Dreams, they bought two things. The Wolfenstein engine from its developers id Software, and the rights to the film Hellraiser. Okay, so Christian Gaming Company has the rights to Hellraiser. I'm not making this up. However, once they became Wisdom Tree and started making all the Christian stuff, they had a change of heart. They threw the Hellraiser idea out the window and converted it to Noah's Ark. Thus, Super 3D Noah's Ark was released, the only unlicensed Super Nintendo game. To play it, you had to attach it to a licensed game, and that would override the lockout chip. Instead of playing as the one-man army BJ Baskovich, you play as Noah. (laughs) Instead of slaughtering legions of Nazis, you're trying to get goats to fall asleep by feeding them. And my favourite bit is the final boss. In the original, Hitler wears this mecha robot suit thing. You shoot it enough times and it gets destroyed, leaving you free to kill Hitler himself. In 3D Noah's Ark, you're trying to pacify a bear. And he starts off hiding in a bush. That's the armour. So you've got this bush running around that you're trying to fire food at. And when you give him enough food, he comes out of the bush and then you're just (laughs) playing as Noah battling a bear that's trying to eat. (laughs) So there we are. That's a whistle-stop tour of the history of a handful of video games and some of my Super Nintendo favourites. So so we spoke about the uh, Playground Wars. I, I I was a Nintendo consumer. I had the uh, the NES, the SNES, and the Game Boy, but I was I was lucky enough that um, my my best mate he had um, the Master System, the Mega Drive, the Mega CD, and the Game Gear. So uh, we, we got to play them all. Really, there, there there wasn't that much of a rivalry. I wouldn't have thought it was just kind of like whose house are we at? Oh, okay, we're playing this brand. But yeah, there there were so many so many good games. I I did love the the NES, but the SNES is more my more my speed i think I, I i kind of i had it for less time but i remember the games more fondly and street fighter 2 turbo was the 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 packing game i got with the console that was definitely that was the one for me that's that's the one i spent most of my time playing there was that and um a game called zombies ate my neighbor i'm not sure if oh, you've yes. ever heard of that one from uh konami that was brilliant i, I remember just reading about that in a, in a magazine and going I, I should get that. It wasn't a high-profile game by any means, but um, it was it was really good. Um, and Star, well, we'll say Star Wing because we're European, but Star Fox, uh, which showed off the the Mode Seven uh, chip with the three D modeling and parallax scrolling mm. and whatnot. I'm just going to have to correct you because it was the it was the Super FX chip. Super FX, yes. Sorry, Mode Seven was a, an internal machine thing, wasn't it? On the yeah, uh, yeah, yes. Um, yeah, Mode 7 allowed the Super Nintendo to sort, sort sort of rotate and zoom in on images. So it was used for games like Mario Kart to, 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 to have a flat track and also Pilot Wings. You know, I, I used to love Pilot Wings, doing things like parachute jumps and flying around in a jetpack. That was great fun. But yeah, that's what Mode 7 was for. 
But obviously, I've got to do my Slide Simpsons tie-in, and um, it turns out there were four Simpsons games released for the Super Nintendo. There was Bart's Nightmare in 1992, which was rubbish. <laughs> there was Krusty's Funhouse, which was also in 1992. That was pretty good. And then there was Virtual Bart in 1994, which was rubbish. And then there was the Itchy and Scratchy game, which I'd never heard of until this bit of research, which was also released in 1994 and was also apparently rubbish. So I think I'll stick with the Konami arcade beat-em-up myself, which I've always wished they'd do a sequel to because they could use all kinds of other characters in it. You could have Frank Grimes and Sideshow Bob as bosses. be fantastic. <laughs> but as for references to Nintendo in the show, yeah, there's a few. Season 21, episode 14, Postcards from the Wedge, has Bart watching a cartoon called Digibots, which is essentially Pokemon and features essentially Ash and Pikachu, which leads us, of course, to season 10, episode 23, 30 Minutes Over Tokyo, which features battling seizure robots. That is a reference to the episode of the Pokemon anime that gave 685 children epileptic seizures in Japan, Deno Senshi Porygon which roughly translates as Electric Soldier Porygon, making Porygon sound a lot more hardcore than that Pokemon actually is. Hmm. There's also the Funtendo Z, introduced in Season 21, Episode 11, Million Dollar Maybe, which is the Springfield equivalent of Nintendo's later Wii console, which nearly ruined console gaming by selling a whole bunch, which made Microsoft and Sony react by releasing horrendously lame motion gaming peripherals. Donkey Kong appears twice, wants to show that he's still got it in Season 8, Episode 10, The Springfield Files, and again in Season 16, Episode 8, Homer and Ned's Hail Mary Pass. Oh no, wait, that's noted Quijibo Homer Simpson lobbing barrels at Mario in the latter one. And no list of this ilk would be complete without Season 10, Episode 7, Lisa Gets an A, which introduced the world to Super Nintendo Chalmers. Yes, very good. Very good. And with that, we better wrap up. So don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye.